The Zeal of Moshe, Nadav and Avihu, and Pinchas, by Rabbi Yonatan Grossman. Translation by Karen Fish. Parashat Balak commences the second half of Sefer Bamidbar in geographical terms. From now on, B'nai Yisrael are encamped on the plains of Moab. Only in Sefer Yehoshua will we read of them crossing the Yarden and entering the land. The first incident that takes place here is one of the most encouraging narratives in Sefer Bamidbar. The king of Moab teams up with a sorcerer, and together they connive to cause the downfall of Am Yisrael through the use of a terrible curse. But what miraculously ends up happening is that from the mouth of that same antagonistic heathen prophet, we hear praises of Am Yisrael that are virtually unparalleled in all of the Torah. Against his will, Bilam praises Israel for their blessing of fertility. Who can count the dust of Yaakov and count even a quarter of Israel? He praises their special connection with God, who watches over them constantly. God, their Lord, is with them, and the trumpet blast of the king is among them. He praises the organization of the Israelite camp in the lawless desert. How good are your tents, Yaakov, your dwelling places, Israel. On top of all this, Bil'am goes on to praise their valor in war and their victories over their enemies, until, at the end of the third blessing, the man who intended to curse the nation finds himself declaring, Those who bless you are blessed, while those who curse you are cursed. Yet, in the midst of our elation at the words of this Gentile sorcerer standing atop the mountain, the text suddenly focuses on what B'nai Israel are actually doing inside the camp, and it is a very different picture from the one just depicted by Bil'am. They are poles apart. In contrast to the goodness of the tents and the blessing of fertility, we now read, The nation began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. In contrast to the presence of the Shekhinah amongst the Israelite camp, we suddenly discover that Israel joined themselves to Baal Peor. In contrast to the view of Bil'am, who was with a closed eye, of Israel dwelling by their tribes, we now hear of a completely different view. Behold, a man of B'nai Israel came and brought to his brethren a Midianite woman before the eyes of Moshe and before the eyes of all the congregation of B'nai Israel. In contrast to the good tents that so impressed Bil'am, we are now faced with the chamber into which the prince of a tribe of Israel leads the Midianite woman. Indeed, we are already used to ups and downs alternating in quick succession. Suffice it to recall the revelation at Sinai, where Am Yisrael declared with a single voice, We shall do and we shall hear, and the terrible sin of the golden calf that followed immediately afterwards. In fact, these two stories are similar in their general structures. In both cases, the text first describes the presence of the Shekhinah within the Israelite camp. At Sinai, the revelation of the Shekhinah is one of the most fundamental elements of the entire experience, and the appearance of the glory of God was like a consuming fire at the top of the mountain, before the eyes of Bnei Israel. In our parasha, too, in the story that provides the background to the sin of Baal Peor, the blessings of Bil'am, the fact of the presence of the Shekhinah within the camp seems to present itself as a central factor leading to Bil'am's inability to curse. God, their Lord, is with them, and the trumpet blast of the king is among them. God took them out of Egypt. They have the strength of an ox. For there is no divination in Yaakov, nor enchantment in Israel. Now let it be told to Yaakov and Israel, 
what God has done. A simple reading of these verses connects them to the broader narrative context and views Bilam's words as a justification, uttered for Balak's benefit, to explain his inability to curse Am Yisrael. Bilam explains why divination doesn't work on Yaakov and why enchantment has no effect on Israel. His explanation, God their Lord is with them, or, as the end of the verse formulates it, now let it be told to Yaakov and to Israel what God has done. This nation has no need for diviners and enchanters, because their Lord in their midst will tell them what he has done. As a complete antithesis to the calm and joyful description of the divine presence resting amongst Israel, the nation commits, in both stories, the sin of idolatry, also involving sexual immorality. Both sins, closely connected to pagan culture, are mentioned in these two stories. First, sexual immorality, in the sin of the golden calf, and they got up to make sport. In the sin of Baal Peor, and the nation began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. Second, idolatry, expressed in the offering of sacrifices and eating them. In the sin of the golden calf, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the nation sat down to eat and drink. In the sin of Baal Peor, and they called to the people to participate in the sacrifices of their gods, and the nation ate, and they bowed down to their gods. It is no surprise that God's reaction is similar in both stories, and the expression burning anger characterizes both. And now let me be, let my anger burn against them. And in our parasha, and God's anger burned against Israel. God's burning anger finds expression in both cases in the form of a plague, magefa. In Shmot, and God struck the nation, vayigaf. And in our parasha, and those that died in the plague. The connection between the two stories also stands out on the linguistic level. Suffice it to mention Moshe's instruction to the judges of Israel, let each man slay his men who attached themselves to Baal Peor, which reminds us very clearly of Moshe's call to the tribe of Levi after the sin of the golden calf, let each man slay his brother, and each man his neighbor, and each man him who is close to him. The human activity responding to the punishment in both cases is defined as atonement, Perhaps I shall make atonement for your sin, in Shmot, and and he atoned for B'nai Israel here. A similar reward is given to the men of the sword in both cases. Following the Levites' punishment of those who worship the golden calf, they are awarded an appointment related to the Mishkan and the divine service. Consecrate yourselves today to God, each man against his son and against his brother that God may give a blessing upon you this day. Likewise, Pinchas is given an appointment related to the service of the Mishkan. He and his descendants after him shall have a covenant of priesthood forever, because he was zealous for his God and he atoned for B'nai Israel. The presentation of the sin of the golden calf as background for the sin of Baal Peor and the zealous act of Pinchas contributes on several different levels to hinted meanings in the sin of Baal Peor. Firstly, from the historical perspective, creating a connection between the two stories creates a tragic literary cycle in B'nai Israel's journey from Sinai to the plains of Moab. At Sinai, the high hopes for the nation, as expressed in the fact of the revelation, shattered in the face of the nation's actual condition. 
in the plains of Moab, after nearly 40 years of wandering, the high hopes expressed this time by Bil'am once again crashed in the face of the nation's actions. But I believe that the significance of the connection also contributes to an understanding of the Torah's attitude towards the characters in the story of Baal Peor. This direction is emphasized by Chazal in their description of the dialogue that takes place between Pinchas and Moshe before Pinchas takes up his spear. It is written, Pinchas the son of Elazar saw. What did he see? Rav taught, He saw the act and remembered the relevant law. He said to Moshe, Brother of my father's father, did you not teach me when you descended from Sinai that one who cohabits with a Gentile woman is to be struck by zealots? Why does Rav insist that Moshe taught this law concerning zealots, specifically when he came down from Mount Sinai? It seems reasonable to assume that Rav is hinting at Moshe's actions when he descended and saw the golden calf. There, with no divine command, Moshe gathered the tribe of Levi, who answered the call, He who is for God, let him join me, and killed those who had joined themselves to the calf. There, in Moshe's zeal for God, he commanded the people of his tribe to take each man his sword and to kill all those who had made sport with women. Now, Pinchas saw the act and he remembered the law. In other words, he had internalized what his teacher, Moshe, had taught him when he came down from Sinai, and in the face of Israel's sin, he was overcome with zeal for God. Pinchas therefore took a spear in his hand and killed Zimri ben Salu, who had gone to commit harlotry with Kozbi Batsur. This connection is referred to explicitly also by Rashi, and comes across as a criticism of Moshe. They were crying. The law escaped Moshe, all fell to weeping. Faced with the calf, Moshe stood against six hundred thousand, as it is written, and he ground it until it was fine, but here he was helpless. The connection between the two episodes raises a criticism of Moshe's lack of action. At the episode of the golden calf, he acted vigorously against the sinners, but here he does nothing of his own initiative. Only after God's command does he gather the judges of the nation and decide that those who join themselves to Baal Peor will be killed. In this story, it is Pinchas who fulfills Moshe's role. He enters his shoes and, in a show of zeal, without any explicit command, kills the prince of a tribe of Israel. Just as the presentation of the sin of the golden calf as background to the story of Baal Peor hints at a criticism of Moshe and at praise of Pinchas, there is also another story which the Torah may be hinting should be seen as background to our story. Here again, there is special praise of Pinchas, as well as a lesson as to the limitations of zeal. This background story arises from the Zohar on Parashat Acharemot, concerning the death of Nadav and Abihu. Nadav and Abihu did not die like other mortals, even though they were not married, for they died only in body, but not in soul. From where do we know this? It is written, He took one of the daughters of Putiel as a wife, and she bore him Pinchas. These are the heads of the households of the Levi'im by their families. Pinchas alone is enumerated, although it is written, the heads of the households of the Levi'im. From this we learn that Nadav and Abihu died a physical death, but not a spiritual death. And therefore it is written, Pinchas the son of Elazar, the son of Aharon. According to the Zohar, the souls of Nadav and Abihu were reincarnated in Pinchas, 
and he was a tikkun, mending for them. What is the meaning of this surprising connection between the sin of Nadav and Abihu and the zeal of Pinchas? The Zohar itself explains, these brought a strange fire, here there was a strange woman. In other words, there is some similarity, linguistic and perhaps even more, between the sins described in these two stories. Does this connection arise from the verses themselves, and does it contribute to the significance of the story of Baal Peor and the zeal of Pinchas? It would seem that the basic model that we outlined previously does indeed exist also in the text's description of the eighth day of the consecration of the Mishkan. On the eighth day, when Nadav and Abihu died, the revelation of the Shekhinah is one of the central themes of the day and of the sacrifices brought on that day. Concerning the offerings of the day, Moshe commands, This is the thing that God has commanded that you do, that God's glory may be revealed to you. His intention is clear. Since this is the first day that the Shekhinah enters to dwell in the new abode that B'nai Israel have built, and it is of great importance that the entire nation see that God does indeed desire for his Shekhinah to dwell amongst the nation. After the sacrifices of the eighth day, we read, And the glory of God appeared to all of the nation, and a fire emanated from before God, and consumed the burnt offering and the fats upon the altar, and all the nations saw, and they shouted, and they fell upon their faces. But immediately after the description of this revelation, and the description of the nation's joy, we read of the sin of Nadav and Abihu. Here again, the attribute of divine justice breaks into reality and kills those who have sinned. Moreover, the Zohar seems to be relying here on certain motifs that are common to the two events, over and above the basic model aligned above, and which create a connection between them. First, the entire nation is standing about the Ohel Moed, while those who have sinned, and are apparently standing within the precinct of the Ohel Moed, are killed. On the eighth day, this is clear. Bnei Israel are standing at the entrance to the Ohel Moed, where they see a revelation of the Shekhinah, and all the congregation came close and stood before God. But when Zimri takes a Midianite woman, he also does so before all the congregation, at the entrance to the Ohel Moed. And behold, a man came and brought to his brethren a Midianite woman before the eyes of Moshe and before the eyes of all the congregation of Bnei Israel, and they were weeping at the entrance to the Ohel Moed. The public nature of the two events plays an important role in both stories. Second, the verb associated with the actual sin in both cases is lehakriv, to bring close or to sacrifice. Concerning Nadav and Abihu, we are told and they brought before God a strange fire. Similarly, and quite surprisingly, Zimri's sin is described as follows, and he brought to his brethren a Midianite. As mentioned, the Zohar also compares the second half of each of these verses, a strange fire and a Midianite, a strange woman. Third, while these two motifs create a connection between the sinners, Nadav and Abihu on one hand, and Zimri ben Salu on the other, the more obvious connection that arises intuitively in our consciousness concerns the Kohanim in the two stories, between Nadav and Abihu and Pinchas. This, in fact, is the connection that the Zohar is addressing when it teaches that Pinchas was a reincarnation of the souls of Nadav and Abihu. In this context, too, the parallel is both thematic and linguistic. Both stories deal with Kohanim who deviate from the authority vested in them and who acted on their own initiative. 
In both cases, the Torah emphasizes their lineage from Aharon. The character appears on the stage labeled as a Kohen. Nadav and Abihu are presented by the Torah with the words, And the sons of Aharon Nadav and Abihu took. While Pinchas is introduced with a detailed lineage that reaches back to Aharon. And Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aharon the Kohen, saw. And fourth, as mentioned, there is also a linguistic common denominator to the two stories. The act of Nadav and Avihu is described as taking something and performing an act with it. The sons of Aharon, Nadav and Avihu, took each of them his censer. Similarly, the Torah describes Pinchas's act, he took a spear in his hand. As the Zohar describes it, Pinchas is a tikkun for the sin of Nadav and Avihu. Indeed, the connection between the two stories is actually based on the subject that is common to both, a Kohen's zeal for God. A few years ago, I proposed that the sin of Nadav and Avihu was fundamentally connected to their will to hide God's revelation from the nation as a whole. They sought to achieve this through offering incense, whose function is to create the cloud that hides the revelation of the Shekhinah. In other words, the motivation of Aharon's sons was a religious one, arising from zeal for God. Is it really proper that every man, woman, and child should merit an unmediated encounter with God? Their basic assumption was that even if it was proper that there be a revelation of the Shekhinah before the Kohanim, the nobility of Bnei Israel, this was not appropriate before a mass gathering of the entire nation. For their pride and their attempt to create a spiritual elite to which only they and those like them would belong, they paid with their lives. God sought other Kohanim, like Aharon their father, who was prepared to run with a censer containing incense into the midst of a plague that was decimating whoever came near in order to save God's nation in its time of danger. Here, I believe, we arrive at the fundamental difference between the zeal of Nadav and Avihu and that of Pinchas. Nadav and Avihu sought to preserve, through an act of zeal, their special status and honor. In other words, they had a personal interest at stake. It is difficult to maintain that their zeal was truly for God's sake. We suspect that their act was done for their own sake, even if cloaked in an apparent desire to preserve the honor of God. Zealots of this type have existed in every generation. People who preach morals and honor for God to others while revealing in their actions a profound concern for their own personal honor. In complete contrast, Pinchas in his act endangers all that is precious to him. Since the sinner in this case is a prince of a tribe of Israel, and since Moshe, who has already demonstrated in the past that the sin of the golden calf, that when the situation calls for an act of zeal he acts accordingly, is doing nothing, it would be easy to build a very serious case against his hastiness, his youthful extremism that does not stop to listen and learn from the more mature and thoughtful world around him. Despite all this, Pinchas acts. He does not calculate that despite the danger, he may still derive benefit from his act. On the contrary, Pinchas is well aware that he is likely to lose his honor in the eyes of those around him. Perhaps he will even lose his life if he is judged as a murderer. Nevertheless, Zimri's desecration of God's name does not allow him to sit by idly. The disparity between the zeal of Nadav and Avihu and that of Pinchas is a fine one. Sometimes it seems that a person cannot honestly say of his own actions whether they are, honestly and truly, for the sake of God, in opposition to his own interests, or whether he is acting for God's sake 
but also hoping to gain something along the way. In this context, the Midrash that seeks to explain Moshe's lack of action in the face of Zimri's sin assumes new significance. He brought to his brethren a Midianite woman before the eyes of Moshe. He, Zimri, attacked Moshe verbally. He said to him, Moshe, is she forbidden or permitted? He answered, She is forbidden to you. Zimri said, You are the loyal teacher of Torah. God takes pride in you and declares, Not so, my servant Moshe. But you say that this woman is forbidden, even though your wife, whom you took, is likewise forbidden to you. This one is a Midianite, and so is the other. This woman is the daughter of a foreign king, while your wife is the daughter of a foreign priest. The Midrash turns the sin of Zimri into a personal attack on Moshe. Thus, Moshe becomes an interested party, and if he acts, there is a danger that he will not be doing so purely for the sake of God's holiness, but also for the sake of his own honor. It is not Moshe who will act in this situation, but rather Pinchas, who succeeds through his actions in halting God's burning anger.